Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem 31 years. So he was eight, eight years old when he became king? Yep. I'll believe that when pigs fly. Get back down here, you know you can't fly. Well, let's continue our series called When Pigs Fly. We are looking at a young boy, age eight, who became a king. Now, you know, kids today, they kind of get a bum rap from time to time, don't they? They're known for being a little bit lazy and a little bit disinterested. Heard a story about a dad and a son who went to the sporting goods store, and the son kind of looked at this weight equipment. He said, Dad, would you buy me this weight equipment? I can get big muscles. The dad said, oh, that's so funny, son. You've never stuck to anything in your entire life life. I buy that. Those weights are just going to collect dust. That's all they're going to do. He said, no, dad, no. I promise you I'll work out those weights every single day. He said, I don't know, son. I don't think you'll do it. The kid said, dad, do you want me to move out one day? Do you want me to get married one day? I need to do curls for the girls. You understand what I'm saying? I need to do some curls for the girls, dad. You've got to buy me this weight equipment. Well, when the dad heard that, he said, all right, son, I'll buy you the weight equipment. So he heads to the register. That's when he heard his kid said, you want me to carry it? Now, that's a kid for you right there, isn't it? Don't want to carry it to the register, but he's going to lift it every single day. Some kids just have a bit of a slow start along the way, don't they? And then there's other kids you're like, wow, I can't believe how much that kid has accomplished at such a young age. Take, for example, the young girl, Malala. Maybe you've heard of her before. She lives in Pakistan. She has a love for education, which is a problem for the ruling Taliban there in Pakistan because the Taliban believes that a woman or a girl doesn't have a a right to an education. Well, Malala just couldn't understand that as a teenager. She started writing letters, sending videos to the BBC, wondering why they weren't reporting on this atrocity more often. Well, all of a sudden, the BBC started picking up on this story. It started getting some traction. It started getting some headway. And the more airtime it received, the more death threats Malala got. One day in 2013, she was walking home from school. The Taliban attacked her and shot her in the head. Somehow, someway, she survived the uh, attack that was on her life, and she continued to go from place to place, proclaiming that girls should have an equal right to education. Well, there was worldwide outrage after she was shot. And finally, the Pakistani people rose up, and millions of them signed a petition, and they put into a law an act that said that every girl deserves the right for an education. 2014, she won the Nobel Peace Prize. She did all of that before the age of 18 years old. Or take, for example, the young man Easton. One day he's at a science fair, age 14, sees a girl with a prosthetic hand. He walks over to her, begins to ask her questions. Now, the hand can only open and close like a claw. He asked her a question. He said, how much does a hand like that cost you and your family? She said, $80,000. Well, he thought that was absolutely ridiculous. He looked at that hand and thought, I can design a better hand than that. Now, remember, the kid's 14 years old. His first prototype was made of Legos and, and uh, fishing wire. 
And, and, and he, that prototype led to another prototype, which led to another prototype. That kid almost has a fully functioning hand that costs less than $1,000. This kid is such an intelligent individual that NASA came calling to him to be a part of his robotics program. That's right. This kid has been hired by NASA, and he's 17 years old. Now, you're really going to like this kid an awful lot because all the things that you could have patented, all the things you could have made millions and millions and millions of dollars with with your designs and your plans, the kid could have cared less. In fact, he put it on the internet for everyone to see it, for everyone to get advantage of it, so maybe somewhere along the way, someone would advance his technology so that the prosthetic hand would be better and better over time. That's a kid who accomplished all that by the age of 17. That's impressive to me. We read through the Bible of young people who did phenomenal things. David, age 17, runs onto the battlefield to take on the giant Goliath. Then we have the little boy in the New Testament that gives Jesus his lunch. Five little loaves of bread and a couple of small fish. Jesus takes this lunch and he blesses it and he breaks it and he multiplies it. And 5,000 men, not counting women and children, are fed as a result. All throughout history, we read about one outstanding young person after another. My goodness, Joan of Arc was 17 years old when she led her armies against the English. Mozart was six years old when he finished his first symphony. And Thomas Jefferson was in middle school when he penned the Declaration of Independence. That last one's not true. <laughs> but I just want to make sure you were still with me. It would have driven the point home nicely, don't you think? So today we're going to look at a king. A king at the age of eight years old. His name is Josiah. Its story is found in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 2. Let's look at it. It says, Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and followed completely the ways of his father, David. Now, now, now David was not Josiah's father. I want to make sure you understand that. Uh, King David came years earlier. This is someone that Josiah looked up to. That's what the writer of 2 Kings is trying to say, that David was a person that Josiah looked up to, wanted to aspire to be like. No, no, Josiah had an evil grandfather and he had an evil dad as well. But he wanted to be in the footsteps of King David because because David was a man after God's own heart. The, the passage continues. It said, Josiah did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In, in other words, he's staying focused on what God has for him to do. He wants to be the man that God has called him to be. Look at what the Bible says. It says, he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. Look at verse 25. Neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did. He turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength. Wouldn't you love for someone to say that about you, that you turn to the Lord with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your strength? This is a guy who's loving God with every fiber of his being. And I'm just going to tell you right now, you never would have guessed that he'd be the one to do it. I mean, he came from a long line of people who could have cared less about God. This is the one kid that you would think he would follow in his grandfather's footsteps or he would follow in his dad's footsteps. That's what so many people do. They just become like their family, right? 
Let me tell you about his, his grandfather. He was a despicable individual. His name was Manasseh. It says, Manasseh did what was evil in the Lord's sight, following the detestable practices of the pagan nations that the Lord had driven from the land ahead of the Israelites. Verse 6, Manasseh also sacrificed his own son. So here's a guy who's so into satanic pagan worship that he sacrifices his own son to that false god. It says he practiced sorcery and divination, and he consulted with mediums and psychics. He did much that was evil in the Lord's sight, arousing his anger. Verse 16, Manasseh also murdered many innocent people until Jerusalem was filled from one end to the other with innocent blood. This was in addition to the sin that he caused the people of Judah to commit, leading them to do evil in the Lord's sight. Now, can you imagine this kid? Somebody say, hey, man, tell me a little bit about your grandpa. Well, he's a Satanist. First of all, I know about that. He's a Satanist. He worships false gods. He even sacrificed one of his own sons to that false god, and he's a murderer too. I mean, he's murdered so many people. The blood just flows from one side of Israel all the way over to the other side. This is not a person that you aspire to be like, would it be? But his son, Amon, Josiah's father, wanted to be just like his dad. Look at what it says about him. Amon did what was evil in the Lord's sight, just as his father Manasseh had done. He followed the example of his father. He abandoned the Lord, the God of his ancestors, and he refused to follow the Lord's ways. Now, it would have been easy for Josiah to follow in Manasseh and Amon's ways, don't you think? I mean, you're an eight-year-old kid. You look around, you, you see when your dad comes into a room that people stand at attention, that people fear him, that people cling to every word that he ever has to say. That's the only form of leadership that he's ever seen before. He doesn't fully understand, would you? Would you understand at the age of eight how evil and wicked your father is? So the question is this. Why is it that Josiah went the complete opposite direction of his grandfather and of his father at such a young age? Well, I think there's two reasons for that. One, his dad was assassinated. Listen, when you live an evil life, when you make enemies all the time, when you make people feel like they're less than, when you hurt other people, it's just a matter of time before your sins catch up to you. And I think that made an impression for Josiah. He's like, he's not treating people correctly. I mean, I'm sure he didn't appreciate his dad being assassinated, but I'm certain he also understood why it might happen, right? And I'm thinking in Josiah's mind, one plus one equals two, right? You do an evil thing, many times you'll get an evil thing back your direction. Even at the age of eight, he's figuring this out. Let me tell you the second reason I think he followed God wholeheartedly. And that's because his grandfather, who was the Satanist, the pagan worshiper, he became a fully devoted follower of God. You see, what happened was the Assyrians came in and they took him as prisoner. And while he was in prison, he repented of his sin. And this was his conclusion. And then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. If you ever met a Satanist who became a fully devoted follower of Christ, it would get your attention, wouldn't it? If you ever met somebody who'd sacrificed their own son to their pagan gods, only realized the error in their ways, and now says there's only one true God... That would get your attention. I think that got Josiah's attention. And even at a very early age, he started to figure out a very important principle to life, a principle that many people to this day still haven't figured out. You ready for what it is? Write this down if you're taking notes. Honor God and he will honor you. That's the principle of life. If you honor God, 
he will honor you. And if you dishonor God, if you ignore God, if you don't wanna do the things that God wants you to do, listen to me, friends, you will play the part of the fool. And you will look back upon your life with so many regrets and so much pain and so much anguish over the damage that you did to yourself, over the damage that you did to somebody else because you dishonored God. And as a result, you wounded people along the way. But if you'll honor God, get this now, if you honor God, he'll honor you. Now you say, how can we make this practical in our day-to-day lives? Well, let's talk about all the single folks who are here in this room and all those who are watching at our multi-sites and on TV and on the stream. How do you honor God in the midst of your singleness? Well, let's talk about dating for just a second. What if you honored God and you said, in my dating relationships, I'm going to be pure. If you honor God in that way, then he would what? He would honor you. But here's what's interesting today for most single people, whether they call themselves Christians or not, aren't honoring God in their relationships. They're jumping from one relationship to another, from one uh, sexual encounter to another. And they say things like this to justify, we're just test driving, you know. We're, We're just seeing if the parts fit. Listen, if you're male and female, the parts fit. You don't need to test drive. Do you understand what I'm talking about right now? But that's what happens a lot of times. A lot of people go into the dating relationship for what they can get off of someone else rather than what they can give to someone else. And then you wonder why your relationships are bad. You wonder why you're miserable. You wonder why you haven't found that connection with someone on a deep spiritual level. It's because you're dishonoring God in your dating relationship. You're doing things that you shouldn't do. What if you made it your goal in your dating relationship to leave the person in better shape than the way that you found them? What if you decided that you would set up your boundaries right off the bat and you would say, listen, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I'm going to honor God with my life and I'm going to honor him with this relationship. So we're going to be pure. We're going to be two people who get to know each other better and develop a friendship with each other. And and if this leads us to marriage, well, then we're going to honor God in our marriage. And we're going to make Jesus the centerpiece of our relationship. We're going to pray together. We're going to read God's word together. And then after we get married, if that's God's will, and we have children, we will have a Christ-centered home. Because we're going to honor God, and then he's going to honor us. How many people are listening to my voice right now and you're sleeping around? How many people right now listening to my voice right now are living with their boyfriend or living with their girlfriend or you're in a relationship that you know is not honoring to God and then you want to get married? And you come, it's so funny to me, you come to the church and you go through the premarital stuff and you sit down with the pastor and we find out that you're living together and you're like, we just really want God to bless our relationship. And we're like, what? You haven't cared about his blessing the entire time. It's as if you've given him a middle finger to say, we're gonna do what we wanna do, but by the way, when we finally say I do, we want your magic pixie dust to fall on us so that we might be blessed by you. Do you realize how ridiculous that is? You dishonor God that whole time, and then you expect God to bless you. It doesn't work that way. You honor God, and then he honors you. Let's talk about this in the area of finances, because that's going to be a lot of fun. 
Now, this is only for those who are followers of Jesus Christ, okay? If you're not a follower of Christ, this does not pertain to you, so don't get ticked off. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you are a manager of the resources that God has entrusted to your care. You're supposed to be a steward of the resources that God has entrusted to your care. And one of the things that God commands followers of Christ to do is he commands us to tithe. That means give 10% of your income to the things of God and to the kingdom of God. And then he says this, test me in this. This is what he says in the Old Testament. Test me in this and see if I don't open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing upon you that you don't have room enough for it. What's the principle? You honor God, he'll honor you. You dishonor God, well, he's not going to bless you in the area of your finances. You see, for some of us, we become hoarders along the way, right? You can't even fit your car into your garage because it's all about your little kingdom. It's all about having great stuff, right? It's all about having a wonderful garage sale every single year with the newest and latest, greatest stuff because you're bored with it and you want something new. And then you come to church, a great church like this one. Of course, the church isn't a building. The church is the people. And you see, you're surrounded by all these generous people. And we show you how the money is being used. But you don't give anything. You keep it all for yourself. So when you see that 86 churches have been started in the last 18 months, you get to realize you're not a part of that. When we do Feed My Starving Children and we pack 2 million meals since the beginning of that partnership with those groups of people, you realize you're not a part of that. I mean, you're here, you're a spectator to it, but you don't have any skin in the game. See, you don't realize that when you put your tithes and offerings in there, that they go all around this world to make a difference. I'm going to tell you real quickly about one thing that we're doing right now that we haven't shared to this point, but we are freeing people from slavery right now in Pakistan. It takes us to wire the money through about 15 different banks, because I don't know if you know this about Pakistan, they don't really want our money. And so we got to kind of figure out a way to get it there. And then when we get it there, we found out about these people who got themselves in debt. And when you get yourselves in debt, you end up having to make bricks for the rest of your life until you pay off your debt. But they don't pay you enough money making those bricks to pay off your debt. So you become a slave for the rest of your life. I don't know if you know this or not, but your tithes and your offerings have freed up four different families from slavery. One family were slaves for 30 years, 30 years. Guess how much they owed? $300. They've been working for 30 years to pay off a $300 debt. But go get that new car. Go build that bigger house. Go fill that closet up. Keep investing in things that are here today and gone tomorrow when you've been given the opportunity to make an eternal difference in the lives of so many people. And then you can sit here and say, I was a part of that. Every baptism, you're a part of that if you give money to this place. Every time a marriage is restored, you're a part of that. Every time the message of Jesus is proclaimed, you're a part of that. Every child who gives their lives to Christ, every teenager who realizes that they have a life and a purpose because God loves them and sent his son to die for them, you had a part in all of that. You honor God, he'll honor you. So why is your finances so jacked up? Because I've rarely met a person who, I can't think of someone I've ever met in my entire life who tithed and found themselves in tremendous amounts of debt. 
Because they're a good steward of the 90% that God has entrusted to their care. You see what's happening, friends? You're dishonoring God in the area of your finances, so God's not going to bless you. But if you'll honor him, he'll honor you. You see how this works? Let's talk about marriage for just a second. You want a phenomenal, successful marriage? I mean, you want a marriage that's absolutely unbelievable? My wife and I will be celebrating our 30th anniversary tomorrow. 30 years of her putting up with me. Do you understand? We just said we're going to honor God. So what does that mean? Well, we read God's word together. We pray together. We talk about spiritual things together. We serve God together. Church is a priority. We don't show up once every two, three, four, five weeks. We show up every single week, unless I'm on vacation, okay? That's what I do. Jesus is the centerpiece of our home, and we serve each other. We put the needs of the other person first, and we forgive quickly because Jesus forgave us. We treat others the same way that he's treated us. We honor God, and for 30 years, he's honored us. But you can do the direct opposite. A lot of, a lot of relationships do. They're hanging on by a thread. Just keep holding a grudge. Refuse to forgive. Keep throwing what they did to you in their face. And then nag them to death. Let them know that they're never going to be good enough. That no matter their best efforts won't be good enough for you. And don't, don't read the Bible together. Don't pray together. Just come to church once every, I don't know, four to six weeks. Just whenever it fits in your schedule, in your routine. And keep living for yourself. And your marriage will be dysfunctional. And the chances of you making it will be slim and none because you're trying to do it in your own power and your own strength away from the power of God. Look, Josiah looks at his grandfather. He looks at his dad and says, that's no way to live your life. Even a kid at the age of eight says, you know what? I think I've got this figured out. If I honor God, then he'll honor me. So what's he do? He gets rid of all the pagan shrines. He gets rid of all the pagan temples. He doesn't want a hint of this in his life. I read a story this past week about a young couple who had a small child and they were looking for a house. And so they found a house out in the country. They loved it. They fell in love with the house. It was everything that they hoped it would be and the price was just right in their budget. They were talking to the old man who owned the house. He said, I'll sell it to you for this amount. He said, on one contingency. They said, what's the contingency? He said, well, I, I want to keep possession of this one rusty nail. That's it. You get the whole house, but I keep possession of the rusty nail. And they thought, that's the weirdest request we've ever heard. But they loved the house some more. And they thought, well, what's the harm in giving him one rusty nail? And so they signed the papers. They paid the money. They moved into the house. And for the first two, three weeks, it was absolute bliss. It was everything they dreamed that it could be. But then one day... They got a knock on the door, and they opened up the door, and it was the old man. And they said, well, how are you doing? He said, I'm doing fantastic. Just wanted to get access to my rusty nail. They said, sounds good to us. And so he walked through the door, and he put this on the rusty nail, a dead crow. And they thought it was a joke. Uh, you're not leaving, are you, without taking your crow? No, that's where the crow goes. It's my nail. I can put on it whatever I want. Well, they were horrified. Here, they messed up their living room. Their kitchen's just about 20 feet away. And, and they thought it was a joke. Maybe an hour or two, he'd come back. He didn't. Maybe a day or two, he'd come back. He didn't. But the maggots came. 
The flies came. The stench was awful. And then every two or three days, knock on the door. And he'd replace the old bird with a new one. Well, they couldn't take it anymore. And the wife turned to her husband and said, we can't live in these conditions. We have to sell this house. But how do you sell a house that has a dead bird hanging from it? The only person that would buy the house back was the old man, which he was more than willing to do at a reduced price. What's the moral of the story? Whatever small thing you give into in your life that makes you less than will stink your life up. Whatever area of your life that you're dishonoring God in, it's just a matter of time before you play the part of the fool. It's just a matter of time till you get to this point in your life when you've stunk in everything that was good in your life up. Listen, Josiah says, we're not, having, we're not putting with any of this stuff. We're getting rid of all the pagan shrines. We're getting rid of all the pagan temples. And we're going to restore the temple of the Lord that had been desecrated. And so they go in there to restore the temple because it's been closed for a while. And while they're working through the temple, you know what they found? They found the word of God. The word of God for these people, for this nation, had been discarded. And look at Josiah's response. It says, when the king heard the words of the Lord, he tore his robes. Why did he tear his robes? Because he realized that his country was so messed up because they had thrown away and discarded the very word of God. Sound like any country you're part of? Why doesn't the United States of America have the same blessing of God that it's had in the past? It's because the United States of America as a country has dishonored God. And then we have the audacity to think that he's still going to bless us? We push him away. We kick him out of our schools. We kick him out of our public forums. We tell people that the book is out of date and out of touch. And we wonder why the moral compass of our country has gone to hell in a handbasket. Josiah tears his robes in anguish over what they have become. And then as he's hearing the word of God, look at what he says. Great is the Lord's anger that burns against us because those who have gone before us have not obeyed the words of this book. Now I want you to see God's response to Josiah's repentance for his country. He says, because your heart was responsive and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I have spoken against this place and its people, that they would become a curse and be laid waste. And because you tore your robes and wept in my presence, I have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, I'll gather you to your ancestors and you'll be buried in peace. Your eyes will not see all the disaster I'm going to bring on this place. God says, because you honored me, guess what? I will honor you. You. So are you honoring God? Are you honoring God in your attitude? Does your attitude reflect the attitude of Jesus Christ? Are you honoring God in your relationships? Are you seeking Him? Is He the centerpiece of the relationships that you find yourself in? Or are you dishonoring God? 
Are you honoring God in the choices that you make? Are you honoring God as you approach his word humbly? I was reading a book by Francis Chan. He mentioned a verse of scripture that just tore him up. It's Isaiah 66 verse 2. It says this, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Francis in the book says, I read that and I started to cry. He said the reason he started to cry was there was a day in his life when he would read the word of God and he had such a great reverence and respect and a fear for God that whatever God said, that's what he wanted to do. He would come before the word of God and he would tremble at what it had to say. I mean, this is the word of God. This is what God wants us to do. This is the direction God wants us to go for our lives. But as he read that passage of scripture, he had realized that it had been a long time since he had trembled at the word of God. It had been a long time since he had taken seriously and to heart the things that God was revealing him to do, to be. And my question to you and my question to me is how long has it been since you trembled in the presence of God? How long has it been since you studied the word of God and you've come before the word of God humbly to say, God, whatever you want, whatever you reveal to me, whatever you want me to stop doing, whatever you want me to start doing, that's what I want to do. Now, here's the bummer in all of this. You ready? When I ask you, is there an area of your life where you're not honoring God, something came into your mind immediately. You see, here's what's interesting about you and what's interesting about me. We know what needs to be changed in our life. We know where we're dishonoring God. We know where we're ignoring him. But just because you know what needs to be changed doesn't mean you're going to change it. Isn't that the truth? There was this article I came across this past week. The heading of the article said, change or die. That's a nice article, isn't it? Change or die. What if you were given the choice? The paragraph went on. What if a well-informed, trusted authority figure said you had to make a difficult and enduring change in the way you think and act? If you didn't, your time would soon end, a lot sooner than it had to. Could you change when change really mattered? Well, according to the article, nine out of ten people couldn't do it. They couldn't make the changes. This was based upon a study done by Edward Miller, former CEO of the hospital at John Hopkins University. Dr. Miller studied patients who had undergone bypass surgery for their heart. So you understand these people are so sick in their heart that they need someone to spread open their ribs and fix their heart. And then afterwards, when they're recovering, the doctor sits down and says, there's got to be changes from this point forward. You can still live a long life, but you need to start exercising. You need to start eating correctly. And if you'll do this, you'll continue to live. But if you don't make the changes, well, you don't have much more time left on this earth. Now, you would think in that scenario that they would take that so very seriously that every single one of them would change. Two years after their bypass surgery, 90% had not. 90% still weren't exercising. 90% were still going to McDonald's getting Big Macs with a side order of supersized fries. They were continuing to do the same poor choices and the same poor things that they had done before, even in the face of death. Now, we're not shocked by that, are we? 
Because how many times you sat here, how many times you watched me at home and said, you know, there's some changes that need to happen in my life. But as soon as I got done, as soon as I said amen, you got up and what you talked about was where you're going to eat. You left with every intention of making a change. And here we are today dealing with the same old garbage that we've dealt with for our entire life. 90% of you will never change. Isn't that encouraging? So let me talk to just the 10% that wants to. So you're out. And so are you. I'm just going to talk to this itty bitty bit. Do you want it? Are you ready to surrender completely over to God? Because that's the only way you're going to pull this off. For this 10%, you come before Him humbly. You say to Him, you ready for this? Every single day, less of me, more of you. God, I can't do this. God, I can't pull this off. God, I'm going to keep going back to the same things I shouldn't go back to. I'm going to keep looking at the things I shouldn't look at. I'm going to keep saying the things that hurt people that I don't want to say, oh God, I can't do this. But you tell me if I deny myself and I take up my cross, I put this on the cross of Christ, and then I follow you every single day that I can overcome this through the power of your Holy Spirit that lives inside of me. Now, wouldn't it be great if the Christian life was a one-and-done kind of deal where you had to pray a prayer like that one time and then from that point forward you were completely changed? But if you've ever attempted this, you know that's not the way it works. It is a daily sacrifice. It is daily humbling yourself. It is daily surrendering your will to His will. And saying by the power of God that lives inside of me, I will not go down that road any longer. I will not be a part of that anymore. I am going a new direction. By the power of God, he's going to give me the strength to do it. And in those moments every day when you think about turning back and going back, you surrender again. It's a battle. It's a daily battle for your soul. For your peace of mind, for purpose, for significance. Do you want it that bad? Or are you more interested in what you're going to eat after this is over? We sing dangerous songs around here, don't we? One of my favorite songs that we sing from time to time is an old hymn that says, I surrender all. Remember that song? All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. The chorus goes something like this. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee my blessed Savior, I surrender all. You ever sung it? Have you ever lived it? See, I think... A more accurate version of this song that we ought to sing around here is this. I surrender some. 
I surrender some, some to Thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender some. And you wonder why you're empty. You dishonor God. And you'll play the part of the fool. Take it from one who knows. Because I've played the part of the fool for far too long. No, we surrender everything. All my hopes, all my dreams, everything I am, everything I hope to be. Oh God, less of me, more of you. Give me the strength to surrender everything. Now friends, if an eight-year-old king can figure this out, maybe we can too. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, how many areas of our life are out of whack with you? How many ways have we dishonored you? And then we want your blessing. It just doesn't work that way. May we come to our senses. May we confess our sin. May we confess the things that we've been holding on to that we think were so precious. And may we find that you are the precious one. That you're all that matter. That loving you, living for you, pleasing you is all that matters. The stuff of the world's here today and gone tomorrow. May we honor you in every aspect of our life. Lord, what is it that we're holding back? And what area do we need to surrender it once again over to you? God, may we want that more than we want what we're going to eat in a few minutes. May we wrestle with this every day this next week, and may we lay it down before you again and again and again until you've given us the power and the strength, Lord, to never return to it again. We need your help. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.